Hi, it's Mel. Now this episode comes with a warning and a heavy heart. While the first half of our episode is light and details the many interesting aspects of my guest's career path, we then move to discuss the darker side of the legal profession, the personal difficulty that my guest, like so many, have been forced to face as a junior lawyer. The topic of sexual harassment in the legal profession is not a new one, and in Australia, it feels like 2021 was a watershed moment for our industry. Perhaps it will be considered to be the start of our well-overdue Me Too moment. You know, it's common for senior people in the profession to look out for the graduates and juniors as they start their rotations. Whispers of avoid being alone with this person And this person gets way too close after a few drinks, a passed down from generation to generation. We all know who the creeps are, and we all know which firms protect them. People treating each other poorly in the workplace is nothing new. And as the world wakes up and finally has to grapple with this issue, and as the rules and the norms are finally but slowly being reset everywhere, from Australian Parliament and beyond, We must also look to the HR departments, their grievance policies and how formal complaints are affected by the power structures inherent within law firm partnerships. Although the name of the other lawyer involved is public, I have made an editorial decision to remove their name here. This episode is about Fiona's story, told in her voice, focusing on her name alone. The law firm, however, should continue to be held accountable. It is our institutions that allow cultures within which this behaviour can fester. It starts and it ends at the top. I've been advised to make one editorial comment. Fiona does say that she has never received a public apology from her harasser. An article published in the Australian Financial Review on the 1st of April 2021 quotes him as saying that he deeply regretted his conduct and that he unreservedly apologised to Fiona, as well as saying that his actions were inexcusable. Telling our stories, especially when they are painful, is the most powerful tool we have for creating change. Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I, for one, refuse to be part of a profession where future generations of young people have to whisper to each other to avoid being sexually harassed, abused or worse in the workplace. Enough is enough. Hi, Fiona. Thank you for joining us from London. Hi, Mel. Thanks so much for having me. And what time is it for you at the moment? It is 8.35 a.m. on a Friday morning. And I'm so glad that we could make this happen because we are obviously on different sides of the world. No, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for having me on. If you had a limitless credit card and could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? (laughs) Well, so I had time to think about this and I think this is going to make me sound incredibly bougie, but I love hotels. I love traveling, um, which has obviously been a bit hard over the past 18 months, but I just... I'm I'm just obsessed with hotels and sleeping in and so I'd probably I'd probably go to lots of five star hotels. That's that's my jam. Oh, that sounds amazing. Is there any one particularly glorious hotel, unlimited credit card, and you can stay there? Like is there one that comes to mind? 
Well, we, yeah, we got married recently and we, for our honeymoon, we stayed in a few Savoy hotels. <laughs> They're really nice. There's a free plug for Savoy right there. <laughs> well, maybe they can send us an unlimited credit card. Oh my gosh, please. I love clean linen and just like being in a different space. And yeah, I don't know. There's just something about hotels, the little touches as well and mini bars and even receptions and lobbies. I I just, I love the whole thing. I just, I think it's magical. It's a really weird answer. (laughs) It's not a weird answer. You are taking me back to a time when I was able to travel internationally and we were able to go and experience those other places. I think, yeah, certainly with you on that one. Gives us a little insight into kind of who you are and what makes you tick. And it's a, a wonderful segue because, you know, speaking of being in other places, you are obviously in London, but you didn't start your career career there did you? No that's right so I'm from a small town called Inverell in New South Wales and I went to uni in Brisbane where I studied law and I got a grad position at Allen's which is where I started my legal career so I was there for two years and I think we're probably going to talk about that a bit later on in the podcast but in that firm I worked in real estate for the first year and then projects in the second year. And looking back, I'm I'm just like, oh my goodness, those, neither of those areas were for me. It was definitely the right move, I think, to try something a bit different. So after I left Allen's, I went to a not-for-profit called Law Ride. It used to be called Q Pilch. People in Brisbane who are lawyers have probably heard of it. Yes. I didn't realize they changed their name. Yeah. So uh, did you know oh, it as Q-Pilch or as Lawrite? When I was at Cause, we did work with Q-Pilch for Pro Bono Matters. Yes. Oh, Cause. Cause is a great firm for Pro Bono, which was the interesting thing about that role is, you know, because I'd, I'd worked with Q-Pilch when I was at Allen's and it helped me get the job basically because I became friends with the coordinator of the homeless person's legal clinic and I was team leader at Allen's and he actually remains to this day probably the best boss I've ever had he's just it's just so smart and so on it and he was just a master of diplomacy which was really important because in that role when you're coordinating the pro bono legal work across different law firms the contrast was incredible and I was really surprised because coming from Allen's I don't know I guess I, I hadn't really thought about it but the big six law firms are kind of kind of seen as kind of interchangeable you know like they're all good and have different strengths but working at Cupilch Law Right an interesting thing for me was that you know you were working with hundreds of volunteer lawyers but the caliber of the work and the attitude by the volunteer lawyers was so different depending on what firm they worked at and I have to say cause is just like a plus cause is a really really strong law firm when it comes to pro bono it was part of the culture it was you know it was encouraged and it was baked into performance metrics from from memory I mean this was a number of years ago but I think when you you know you can incentivize the behavior sometimes there's a carrot that works and and that can be one of them Uh, and it has an amazing outcome because you're you're actually helping people who would otherwise have trouble accessing justice I suppose yeah, I mean, there's the there's the altruism factor, but it's also just, you know, when you're a lawyer, having a duty of care to your client and to not be negligent and to, you know, give the best advice possible and the kind of legal issues that we were dealing with. We weren't expecting anyone to reinvent the wheel, like there were great 
templates that we provided and it was very interesting to see that at the firms where there wasn't a lot of for example senior lawyer involvement when where it was kind of left to just the grads or where the culture was a bit of oh like oh I have to do this pro bono work now the standard of the work really slipped and there were particular law firms where you know the partners would go down to the clinics and you know it was taken extremely seriously and with those firms we always got really great outcomes and then I think that incentivized the lawyers to throw themselves into it more whereas at the firms where there was very low engagement where pro bono was seen as just something that had to be kind of done or you know whatever that very often there weren't great outcomes and that kind of lowered engagement even further so it was fascinating I I loved that job it's also one of those jobs that I look back on and I'm like oh wow like there's not a lot of work in the world where you're like I am genuine we're genuinely making a difference here you know I've worked in a volunteer capacity for different pro bono organizations since and sometimes it's hard to feel like you're actually making a difference and it feels like I'm just I'm just generating paper like I'm just you know but at at that role it was it was really amazing and I got to meet so many different lawyers from across all the different big law firms and it was really good for developing my people skills and also kind of my management skills and my diplomacy skills because my my instinct or just I guess part of my personality is I would very much want to be like hey, so-and-so, your firm is underperforming and not taking this seriously and, you know, you're, you're rubbish. But I learned basically that you had to take a much more diplomatic approach. Otherwise, you know, the firms could have dropped off because they were doing it for free in their own time. And I think I learned a lot, but I, I probably also still need to work on my diplomacy skills. <laughs> <laughs> it is something you get to practice every day in-house, isn't it? Yes, indeed. I just want to point out the difference there in your experiences going from top tier, you know, and commercial focus into, you know, from really one end of the spectrum into public interest, not for profit, really different kind of experiences. (laughs) Totally. I love to see that you were open to swinging so far uh, the other way as such. That's amazing. Yeah. So the Q-Pilch, I think at that point was, I don't know if it still is, but it was operating out of a, out of an old church, I think because the, uh, the, the founder of the organization kind of wanted to have a maintain a grassroots kind of feel for the organization, but it was a little bit like, why are we in a church? But I did get asked in my interview, my job interview, you know, are you, are you going to be fine coming from a corporate, you know, basically like a, a high rise on Eagle Street to coming and working in this old church? And I was like, I'm not a corporate princess. It's fine. I'm very, I'm just, it's just about the work, right? It's just about whether or not you're keen and interested in the work. I think if you're if you're interested in something, then you generally do a good job in it. But yeah, I mean, lots of people at Pilch came from um, law firms. I, I, I would actually say most people came from top tier law firms. It was not uncommon. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that's how a lot of people who worked at Pilch actually found out about Pilch, And then they were like, well, this is really great. I want to I want to do this full time. Yeah, so my, my husband got a, a, a job transfer. He's also a lawyer to a firm in London. And so we moved to London and I didn't have a job. And I remember talking to a friend before I came over and, and she was like, oh, would you consider doing bar work? Like that's just, we were just, had no idea what my job prospects were here. Are you talking like bar as in a barrister or bar as in like hospitality? No, as in 
as in pulling pints. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we just had no idea, like, if, if I would arrive, you know, and then not be able to work in the law, whether I, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember. So we got put up in this service department off Fleet Street, and I distinctly remember walking through some of the little twisted alleyways that are around there and passing a bunch of people working in this kind of basement. I mean, in retrospect, it's probably, it was probably a pretty like awful kind of work set up because they had hardly any sun but I remember looking at them really enviously and being like will I ever get an office job in this city and just being so jealous that's pretty brave oh it was hard also I felt extremely unfeminist you know jumping ship you know to ride on the coattails of my partner the trailing spouse yeah but also I like I'm a British citizen and I've always wanted to live over here and so he's the well, I'm kind of the reason that he applied to get the transfer. So it wasn't totally this me following him thing, but it definitely felt like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Why am I leaving? Why am I leaving a good job to potentially become a waitress? So I, I did a doc review job. For sure. It's scary. Like Very scary. Very scary. It's a big change for sure. But you get there and, and you, you're saying doc review. I can hear that's where we go next. Doc review. Yep. <laughs> and I sent my CV around to a bunch of basically pro bono organizations and um, the the response was all, your CV is great, but you're not UK qualified, so you wouldn't be you wouldn't be covered by our insurance. And I was a bit annoyed about that and I was like, I'm I'm not gonna become UK qualified. That just seems like it was like when I looked into it, it was like ten thousand pounds or something and just oh I was like, No, I don't wanna do that. Oh wow. Yeah, so I did doc review. So many so many Aussie lawyers go over and, and do the London thing, don't they? Yeah, that's right. But I guess not pro bono. I mean, I do pro bono, but in a volunteer capacity, not in a paid capacity. But yeah, that that was the response at the time. Like law works at that time. Yeah, they said their insurance wouldn't cover it. And I was like, okay. So yeah, I did doc review for three weeks. And then I got a job at the housing ombudsman as an adjudicator, which was quite fun. It was basically making determinations about, you know, who was in the right council, this, you know, poor tenant who had a mouldy ceiling or whatever. And I was doing that for a couple of weeks and I got a job at the single source regulations office for a three month contract. So that was as a solicitor. And that was quite huge because I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually a solicitor role. I was really pleased about that. And this was a really interesting job because it was, it's the single source regulations office. They basically, there's kind of an equivalent in Australia, but they, they regulate non-competed defense contracts. So you've got the Ministry of Dis- Defense spending billions and billions of pounds on, well, t- you know, nuclear submarines, it's topical. And there's really very little oversight over that spend. And particularly when it's non-competed it's like how are you you know how do we know we're getting value for money you know what's the profit rate going to be on this contract so the act and the regulations basically acts as a check on those non-competed contracts so that was really interesting because I've gone from working in a firm, working for a not-for-profit, and now I was working for government and seeing well, all those stereotypes about, you know, British government life. I mean, they've, they've made shows about it. But some parts of it were definitely true. I mean, there were loads and loads of meetings, but also the people who worked there were just next level, just insanely smart and just doing things that kind of no one around the world was doing. And so there was a lot of statutory interpretation in that job, which <laughs> was, was interesting, but it was also a lot more of 
of that, the typical in-house work that I have done since. So, you know, the, the running of the organization, the day-to-day, which I really liked. And I, I really liked working with people all the time. So having people kind of come up to your desk and just ask you a question. And I really like that. I, I definitely like talking to people. And whereas, you know, in my last two lawyer roles, it was much more, you're just kind of at your desk and a bit isolated. What I liked about being in-house is that constant communication and exposure to lots of people from like different parts of the organization. So that was originally for three months, but it kind of kept getting extended. And then that came to an end after I think nine months in the end. And I got another three-month contract at Swarovski, which I was very excited about because their office was the most beautiful office I'd ever been in in my entire life. I was very seduced by it. Oh, I bet. Yes, yes. Did they have crystal chandeliers just hanging everywhere? That's how I imagine it. Yes. So the part of the business that I got a job with was the branding and communication arm of the business. So basically a cost center. So basically the role was getting our crystal in movies and theater productions and, you know, at the backdrop of like, you know, the Oscars and basically a lot of talent agreements, influencer agreements. So I kind of became a bit of a master at influencer agreements, which is so fun. There, there were all kinds of random like and really cool because um, Swarovski's been around since 1895 so it has really cool like archive pieces like you know working with Dior and we were responsible for you know making sure things were properly archived and at one point my boss Michelle was ruffling through some files in her office and she stumbled upon these old uh like original photographs of Marilyn Monroe that for some reason were just (laughs) in her office so this is kind of the environment like you can see how I was just totally seduced by it and just we're in the middle of Mayfair, so like in on our lunch break, we would go to um, the National Gallery was around the corner, and oh yes, all these like fabulous restaurants, and I was just, I was just like, what? And I think after about a month of you know working as a contractor, I went to my boss and I was like, I know you're still looking for someone permanently, so um, I really like this job and. I want to put my hand up and she was like oh yeah you're great and then within a week I was working for them permanently and then I I ended up working there for two and a half years and I probably would still be working with them but for the fact that they had a company restructure last year and when that happened it was right in the middle of the pandemic we knew that the writing was on the wall for our organization because we spent money (laughs) which is probably yeah not not the best best kind of business to exist while everyone's kind of pinching pennies but they yeah they shut down our part of the business during the pandemic and it was this quite terrible thing of you know HR and legal were the last departments to be let go obviously because we had to make sure that everything was tied up but it was this really sad experience of pretty much every week I would have a call with someone who had been made redundant and you know it definitely felt like the organization just closed around us until we were the last ones left and then and then we got let go and that was back in February I was given my three months notice because that's the standard notice period over here So then I, yeah, because I had three months to kind of figure out what to do next, we, you know, because the pandemic was so hard, we, we had kind of decided that we wanted to come home, we wanted to come back to Australia, but that that would be quite difficult. So we figured that I would try and get another short term contract and then kind of see how things were at the end of that contract and hopefully be able to come back to Australia. And so I, you know, told my recruiter that I was looking again, but that I wanted a six month contract and she put forward a few things 
things and one of them was The Guardian and I was like oh my god I love The Guardian that would be amazing and yeah I got that role so I'm in a a six-month contract I've been here since June and again it's just one of those things where really fascinating people really smart people and yeah I, I love it it's really it's really good Wow, so many twists and turns from <laughs> Eagle Street in Brisbane, an old church, beautiful Mayfair, yeah, the Guardian, like just wow, what you you really haven't been afraid to to be open-minded to different opportunities that come along and just and just take what comes and what feels right in the moment perhaps. It's it's yeah, it's awesome. So you're at the Guardian now and what are we a couple of months in? What does your legal life look like in this industry? Well, I mean, it's it's very different. It's very different change of pace. And the way the law firm does things is just completely different to Swarovski. At Swarovski, we were definitely, what's the word for it? A, a jack of all trades, master of none. Like we just did everything. We were just generalists, which I like actually, because you, you never know what's going to come across your desk. And, but at The Guardian, it seems like there are kind of fewer matters to work on. And when we do work on them, they're kind of much higher value and more complex so it's just different in that sense and that we're not at Swarovski it was like churning like churning through the work and here it's more one project at a time that said apparently since I've joined basically and since the summer it's been extremely quiet and apparently that's I think because basically no one went on holiday last year and so now everyone's just taking time off this year because we can actually go places now and do things so apparently it does get quiet mad and quite like busy with work but I haven't seen that yet so it's been quite nice it's been gentle a gentle pace wow amazing I want to take you back to the law firm Mm -hmm. because you did mention a relatively quick stint a little bit of a in and out I've had a look that's seen enough thank you bye (laughs) perhaps (laughs) (laughs) yeah two years it's not a long time it's it's not a it's not a long time it's it's not a short time and in law firm life when you work really you can work around the clock and a number of number of days in the year can can feel like there's a lot of a lot of law firm fit into that time so it probably felt like a lot longer but I'm just interested to explore that part of your journey I know that there is a part of your experience that you do talk about publicly. So yeah, let's let's kind of dive into that and what your experience was when you were there and why you moved on. Yeah, sure. So I think probably it's possible that some of your guests did read about some of the things that I, I said quite publicly earlier on this year about some of the things that I experienced at Allen's. I think the thing about it is focusing on all the negatives and just, you know, the, this this these terrible things happened. It's part of the picture. It's not the full picture. I mean, there's lots of things about Allen's that I really enjoyed and that I'm very grateful for. I mean, I'd never had a proper job before. I'd certainly not had a law job before. And being extremely naive and extremely green and stepping into this environment after coming from university and, you know, I did quite well at uni and I was very confident in myself and very possibly almost borderline arrogant. You know, you get this job at, you know, a top tier law firm, like it's fancy, like you have to wear, a, you know, a, a jigsaw corporate suit for the first time and it's all very overwhelming and I've got to say like at Allen's our grad group was just amazing I'm still very good friends with 
pretty much everyone from our grad group. And I'm really grateful that some of the people that I got to meet while I was working at Allen's, they've just, they're integral parts of my life now. And it's never all completely, oh, this firm is evil. I definitely don't feel like that. I feel like they are a great firm that has a bit of a blind spot. And the blind spot, historically anyway, has been, I think, sexual harassment. And I think there are issues with their culture that make that environment ripe for sexual harassment. Absolutely. And and I totally agree with what you say, because no experience is ever fully good or fully bad. And, and, and every experience is, is never wasted. You know, we come into the, the world as baby lawyers and we're, we've got bright eyes and we're so excited and we do learn a lot. And, and a lot of us would never have the start of to our careers that we had without being able to go into a structure of a law firm and, and a grad group and the rotations and all of the resources that are thrown at that experience. It's, it, there is real privilege in being able to elevate into that echelon of corporate life. And I completely agree with you. There's there's a lot of goodness that comes out of those experiences. And equally, there, there can be some pretty testing stuff personally that you did not expect that was not in the brochure at the careers fair, you know, and that's the stuff that is not talked about enough by by far. And I commend you off the bat for doing the piece and, and publishing. And that was, you know, a significant Australian publication that, that you came out and put your story to. And, and that it, it's very rare to see those stories. You know, you're really quite brave to do that. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, the trigger for me was definitely Annette Kimmett, which, yeah, probably also the listeners know. She was the chief exec at Mintrellis and in context, we were in lockdown here. I'd been made redundant. I think it was the day before my husband's birthday and I read I read about Annette Kimmett getting sacked. And like, you know, as, as you know, she was sacked because she had apologised to her staff because it came out that Mintrellis had been advising Christian Porter who had been accused of raping a woman called Kate, you know, in the 80s, and Kate killed herself a few years ago. Yes. The Christian Porter story really, really upset me in a way that I just had not anticipated at all. And I think part of that is because at that time he was the highest ranked law officer in the country and he was accused of allegedly violating a young woman who at the time was a debater, which is what I did in high school. I was a debater in high school. And whatever it was that happened, her life was so derailed that she killed herself while his career was completely untouched. And I was just, I thought it was just wasted potential. And I was angry that the only person who had a fallout, apart from obviously Kate herself, was Annette Kimmett, because she took responsibility to her staff, who probably were as, some would have been as triggered as I was, right? And then to find themselves unwillingly part of the support structure of an alleged rapist. So to me, that was just layers and layers of compounding injustice. And I just felt a lot of shame, actually, about what I had experienced around. And then I felt shame at still feeling shame at, you know, not having moved on from this thing that happened eons ago. For sure. So, yeah, I wrote this opinion piece and I sent it off to the Sydney Morning Herald and I went to bed and then I woke up on my husband's birthday and my life had just imploded as I knew it. My LinkedIn inbox had just filled up with all of these messages. Oh, Fiona, that's that's taking you back. 
Ugh, it is. Please take take a moment. No, I'm. I just. I feel like I've talked about this to absolute death. But it's you know at that point in my life it was crazy. Like I was just getting all these messages from people about the things that they had experienced, which I was not. I was not equipped. <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. News organizations were calling me to ask what what would happen to you. And then Alan's reached out to me, my old boss. I guess ostensibly to apologize, but I think really to do like damage control because my old partner rang up and he was like, oh, Fiona, how are you going? Oh, I had no idea you were affected by all of that stuff. And I was like, mm-hmm. But, you know, I was like very nice to him and we talked about it a fair bit and I was extremely like candid with him. And, and then we were doing these March for Justice marches and it was all just frantic time. And then I had a, a message in my Facebook from someone that I didn't know and I just happened to go into that like other section you know for for some reason and I saw her message and basically she had said that she had been sexually abused while she was at Allen's and that she knew the person who harassed me and that she still worked with him and I just felt physically sick I just felt physically sick and I reached out to her and we ended up having a long phone call and I said to her like look I don't think my story on its own is very interesting really but our stories together start to paint a picture of how this is not an individual problem like this is a structural problem about how this kind of stuff is dealt with in law firms so we agreed to talk to the Australian and they came over to my flat again still in lockdown they came outside we sat outside and they interviewed me and they took pictures of me outside our little shed and then um, it ended up on the front page or something and then it yeah it it kind of took over a bit from there Oh my gosh, there's so much in what you're saying that I'm awe-inspired in any person that speaks out against institutions of any size because you know what's going to come and you know what that will look like. And for women to speak out, it can be particularly nasty, particularly vitriolic. And we see it, not just in the law, we see it time and time again Grace Tame comes to mind and, and, you know, she's living and breathing through it at the moment. But there's real examples of women who have something to say but are so scared to say it because they know what will happen. And for you to know that and to push forward anyway, yeah, it's really quite incredible. And if you haven't had a, a time to reflect on the courage that that took, then I want to offer to you to take that time this weekend because you've really done something for women lawyers and lawyers who, who have been made to feel less than, more than you probably would ever realise. And I'm so grateful that you're still able to talk to it a year or so later with me because it is a story that refuses to die because it is a culture that refuses to be really looked at and it continues to amaze me of the stories that I hear in Brisbane around Brisbane firms and Brisbane partners and everybody knows the names and they continue to practice and it, it's a reckoning. A reckoning is upon us because we're just mad as hell, I think. I certainly am. Yeah, I mean, I think we. I think there is a lot of anger, but I think... I don't know if anger translates into change necessarily because I think I think one of your questions was you know if the Me Too movement has is having a moment in law firms 
And I'm not sure it really, I think it may be a moment, but I don't think it's really taken off. And I think the number of messages that I got from women and men who had a story of, you know, often like a much worse, like, you know, severe example, or in some instances, sexual assault, which didn't happen to me. But there is a huge reluctance among people to put their name on this stuff. And I completely understand that because my one practical tip is if you ever find yourself in the news, don't Google yourself and definitely don't read stuff on Reddit because people are savage on Reddit. So much speculation about whether or not and I had a sexual relationship and, you know, that I was just embarrassed that my parents saw and just really, I mean, at the time when I saw some of that, I think I just was just like speechless. Like I just couldn't say, I just was in shock. And then I just was just crying afterwards. Like it's brutal. Like this, this whole thing come, you can understand why people don't come forward because if you look at what happened in my situation, right, which I think is just an incredibly black and white situation of sexual harassment. He was my friend, but he wasn't in a, 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 a position of power over me. It's not like he was my boss. The only gray area is that he was my friend, right? Which I I didn't think was a gray area. So I felt very empowered to report it because I was like, look, this is so black and white, like this is so obviously bad. But then the way that the firm handled my complaint, which was basically this incredibly rushed (laughs) investigation where it was two days, they very clearly wanted to protect him. I was aggressively asked why I didn't respond to his text messages. I was asked to provide details of any interactions that I'd had with him for like the past two years. That could have been red flags. I told them everything. Like I handed my phone over, like they called me up and they were like, oh, would you classify what he did as just plain harassment or would you classify it as sexual harassment? I was like, what? It was just insane. And then ultimately, even though they founded the harassment, like they said it happened, his punishment was effectively a warning letter, which said if he did it again, the firm might terminate his contract like that's that's nothing that's nothing and you had to walk around with the weight of it all and the questions and the the you know the I suppose implied nature of well was it this or was it that or was it because you were friends or you know a slap on the wrist versus no doubt a seriously traumatic event to be (laughs) honest I, I have no doubt Yeah. And this is the thing about normalization, because I think when something is normalized and when everyone is saying, this is fine, this is normal, blah, 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 which is very much how I think the more abusive aspects of the firm culture were normalized. It's like, oh, staying there until 1 p.m. This is normal. This is fine. Being being yelled at by an essay in your office for leaving a file in the wrong place or something. This is normal. Like, this is fine. Like, none of it's normal and none of it's fine. And behavior was not normal and it was not fine but then having to continue working with him like everyone not knowing about it like it is kind of gaslighting because you're kind of like well I'm really struggling with this but everyone else is acting like I should be completely fine and then you start feeling like I'm the problem and then I sat down and I had this 
fake forced apology from him that was like not supervised by anyone where he was basically saying that I was the reason that that he did what he did and then I spent the next five years just going through our friendship basically and and focusing so much on my behavior because that's what the firm did I ended up getting the unredacted report from them on the sexual harassment and it's just this exercise in victim blaming and you know looking at our friendship and considering that our friendship is a mitigating factor and apparently in the interview with Alan's had alluded to us having a romantic relationship but he didn't give them any details because he would have had no proof a journalist I spoke to said it's the equivalent of like holding an empty suitcase and saying I've got all the incriminating evidence in this suitcase which is just so true but like this is the thing with focusing so much on the victim and not on the perpetrator is that it's there's a lot that's wrong with that and I feel like we need another hour to give the full weight of your story and your thoughts on this the justice that it does deserve I am so conscious that I do only have you for another few minutes and you've got to get you do have to get on with your day so you you call it when you're ready to move on because you know I've got nowhere to be this afternoon and we can absolutely really get to this because there's a lot in it and you and I in this conversation will not solve the world's problems and all of the cultural issues in law firms but having the conversation does so much because there are many people right now listening I know there are because I I see the messages as well there are people listening that will just feel a weight lifted by knowing that they're not alone and they're not the only person that feels that they shouldn't have to deal with certain behavior in their workplace and that because it's a law firm and it's a fancy law firm it doesn't actually make it any different to any other workplace and because you might be friends in no way is that a mitigating factor for goodness sake so it's a big topic and and you are an incredibly brave human for even being open to talking about it with me this long after the fact I want to get your thoughts on culturally outside looking in now because you are and you've been able to extract yourself outside looking in culturally how does this happen time and time again in law firms this toxic culture of misogyny and denigration of women because we I've seen it I know everyone that I have worked with female in the law has has seen it in varying degrees and it goes from the jokes and the innuendos the rating of grads based on their bra size or what they might like to do to them strip clubs client outings, traditionally exclusive events, you know, gendered exclusive, you know, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly here. It's a scale. Yes. Yep. And I wouldn't yep. try to say that everything is, is equal, but it starts with language and it moves up to action. And some of the action is criminal and just downright disgusting. And everything in between is allowed to fester time and time again, decade and decade again. And I can't understand why. You've been in it. How does this culture permeate across firms and across countries? Well, I mean, yeah, culture is just people, right? Like it's just people and how people interact with each other. And I think that a lot of the time culture is set at the very top. And most law firms, and this includes small firms, are extremely hierarchical. And I think that lends itself to abuse of power because when I worked at Allen's, junior lawyers were completely enthralled to senior lawyers and partners have so much power. And like when you're in the office a lot and you're working in proximity with each other, like working often late into the night, when you're a grad, like this is this can be really good for like bonding with other junior lawyers. 
But like you can see how easily junior lawyers can fall prey to more senior lawyers. And I think a really common thing is senior associate and grad kind of relationships where the junior lawyers kind of convince themselves that like it's a consensual dynamic only to discover that like if something goes wrong, the predatory elements of that dynamic actually show themselves, which isn't what happened in my case. But a lot of the people writing to me had that kind of story of, you know, I had this quote unquote relationship and I feel really messed up about it. And like, you know, sometimes that person is married or whatever. So I think that's kind of part of it is that it's extremely hierarchical and you have just this massive imbalance of power and when you have so many juniors who are coming in who are female and you have all these partners and essays who are male because that still happens and there's a whole range of reasons structural reasons that that happens you know a lot to do with you know who takes primary responsibility for the children and and the fact that these work hours are we're really set up by and are there to serve men often who have a wife at home looking after children or, you know, keeping the house or whatever. But another thing was, and this was at my team at Arlen's in the second rotation in projects, is that there was a, a culture of worshipping at the altar of technical excellence and hard graft at the expense of everything else. So burnout was so common, bullying other lawyers or bitching about other lawyers or other whole teams as like being slack, not pulling their weight, not being good, not being technically good. There was a really rigid, uncompromising attitude, a kind of like arrogant scorn towards everyone else. I think this permeated throughout the firm. So you would have this kind of arrogant, negative hostility towards people that that you would say is, you know, not not as good a lawyer as you or that team is just they're hardly in, you know, this contempt for them. And then that contempt was also for other law firms that they didn't think was as good as Allen's or even other types of law, you know, like personal injury lawyers looked down on, like that would be the butt of jokes. Oh, in-house lawyers. <laughs> in-house lawyers, yeah. And just this, yeah, this this arrogance, this contempt, it's so toxic. And there's this thing of like, if you are this category of lawyer, you are worthy of respect. So if you're a strong technical lawyer who works in this field at this firm, you are worthy of my respect. And if you are not, then you are not worthy of my respect. And that rejection of this idea that you should respect people, just so that you should respect people, that is not that was not a cultural thing at Allen's at all. It was very much, and I don't know if this is ingrained in in um, law students that, that, you know, once you get into one of these firms, then like, you shit don't stink. I don't know. But I found myself affected by that. I took on some of that. Oh, we're at Allen's. We're great. We're amazing. Like, like, but then for someone like the guy who sexually harassed me, he was and still is the golden boy. So he was extremely hardworking, still is, I understand, extremely bright, extremely capable, very willing to, I guess, subjugate himself for the work. And that is a rare quality at at these firms. So he was extremely precious to Allen's. And when it came to comparing the two of us, it was just a no-brainer, right? So I think there was a willingness to tolerate a bit of sexual harassment if it came from the right person. You know what I mean? And I think that this can be extrapolated. I couldn't agree more. I think we're probably going to the same point. But at the end of the day, the reckoning comes when firms 
choose morals over profit. That is kind of the crunch point when the rainmaker is also a predator and it's a known predator. What are you going to do about it? And the answer is they're not going to do anything because this leads to my second point, which is that these partners, these guys who've been at these firms and probably were junior lawyers at a time when the kind of sexual harassment that we're talking about was like on the much lighter end of the scale. These guys grew up in times when they would go to work drinks and the guys would take their dicks out and swing it around, literally, like in public places. These are some of the stories that have come across my desk. Of named people who are still working at the firm, still in senior positions, different firms, not just Allen's. And what incentive would they have to have, for example, you know, an independent investigation into workplace culture? Because once you kind of pick up the rock, who knows what crawls out of it? And these guys have a vested interest in things remaining exactly the same. Oh, there's so much in that. It's infuriating. I think people also need to be educated, though. So I'm, I'm talking about not just victims of harassment. I'm talking about people who, and not just harassers, but, but the bystanders. The HR departments. The HR departments, but also just like the other staff at Allen's who, I guess, read about what happened with me and would know. Like, again, we've got this normalisation of, well, they know. There, he's fine. He got to sit down and like have nice little cozy chats with every member of his team to explain his harassment from his perspective and like, cool, cool, normalize this. This is totally fine and normal. Woo. But like, I think a lot of people don't report harassment and probably don't judge harassment when they see it because it falls into a gray area. And gray area is this term that just like keeps coming up again and again and again. And I got my hands on the unredacted copy of, well, maybe I mentioned this before, the unredacted copy of their sexual harassment file. And they use the term gray area. And I think that this is just so problematic because, okay, let's say there's a power imbalance, which I think a lot of particularly partners just can't really get their head around, particularly because a lot of them, like their second wife was their secretary, right? (laughs) So they're kind of like, well, it's fine. Like the secretary is, you know, having a great old time and she married me and whatever, it's fine. So this concept of like not understanding what is inherently wrong in having a massive power imbalance over the person that you're having sex with, not understanding that actually if you can terminate someone's employment, like maybe you shouldn't be seeing them. But there there are consensual elements, right? Or another example where like everyone's drinking and like people are a bit loose and like someone's making comments that make people feel uncomfortable, but they're borderline. I think everyone associates, everyone knows or thinks of sexual harassment as like, this seedy old man, like punching this young thing's butt at the photocopier. And everyone is comfortable with that. Like everyone's comfortable with being like, that's wrong. That's sexual harassment. Sexual harassment is bad. Just like how, you know, when people think about rape, they think about, oh, it's someone jumping out of the bushes and like tackling someone to the ground. But like when you add a bit more color to those details, particularly the identity of the victim, which includes their race and their class and their gender, because, you know, gay men have a whole host of different issues when it comes to this. But their behaviour as well, leading up to the moment that they become a victim, people will either become more or less sympathetic to them and they will come across as more or less credible. So, like, as a white woman from a 
private school background, being able to get into one of these law firms, right, I had a huge amount of privilege in being able to come forward and say my story and feel like I would be taken seriously. I also have a huge support base and I'm able to, and I've been employed since. I could have left Allen's and stopped being a lawyer. And if I were then, as a result of all of that, working as a, a masseuse or I don't know, anything, that would count against me, my credibility. The fact that I'm still a lawyer and the fact that, you know, I have all of these boxes checked means I am more sympathetic mm-hmm. and more credible. But if, for example, you know, there's an example where the victim has been flirty or has been drunk, then that becomes like a grey area. And like, I think the same thing goes for a perpetrator. So if the abuser is seen as like a nice guy or a family guy or a good work performer, then I think a lot more bad behavior is excused because I think that we think of harassers and abusers and rapists and all that. We think of them as monsters. And then if we know someone and we're like, well, I really like this person or, you know, this person checks all of these different boxes. We're like, well, they're definitely not a monster. So your kind of cognitive dissonance kicks in and we just want to protect them from the consequences of their own actions, particularly if we can relate to them. But there's no such thing as a monster. There is no such thing as a monster. There is only monstrous actions. And I don't think there's a monster. Is not a monster. I was very good friends with him. I know that as well as anyone. Like I was as surprised as anyone when he turned out to be horrible. But it's not whether you're a good or bad person. That is not what you're trying to get to when we're talking about abuse. It's whether or not the behavior is bad. And it's about having consequences for that behavior to ensure that the victim of that behavior is able to heal and is supported. And so the abuser knows that that behavior is wrong and that that shouldn't happen again. It should be much more focused on the abusive behavior than on the identities of the, you know, the person who is abused or harassed or raped or whatever, and the identities of the person who did it. And I think it's intertwined with misogyny because men are automatically considered more credible than women. So if a woman says, this happened to me, and a man says, well, that didn't happen, I didn't do that, we're trained to think that whatever has come out of that man's mouth is more credible than the woman. Because the woman is, you know, we've got all those stereotypes about women being crazy and looking for attention and being emotional. And so the Reddit comments, right? Like I'm saying all this stuff and they're like, oh, why? Why is she doing this? Like, why? Like, what's her deal? And I've heard from senior staff at Allen's that they were like, why is she banging the drum about this? Why can't she? Why is she coming forward? Why is she coming forward now? And they're just asking the wrong question. Like, why are they focusing on me? Why are they not saying... Why did this happen? Why did he do that? Why is he still saying he has amnesia? Why why didn't they sack him? Why did they force me to keep working with him? Why did they spend all that money on PR crises firms when we came out in the newspaper instead of pouring that money into, you know, that poor that poor lawyer who's still working there? Why didn't they send her on a, a spa day just to be like, you are going through a lot. Holy, we are so sorry. Let's look after you. They didn't. They spent their money on external lawyers to basically try and prevent me get a copy mm-hmm. of the report because I filed a complaint with the Human Rights Commission about them. They went on the record, Richard Spear went on the record talking about, you know, how he supported me and all this stuff. Their focus is, is just completely in the wrong place. And they want to kind of look at me and see me as just a, a troublemaker. And the problem with that is we are not the problem. I had no agency in 
coming over to my place and harassing me. I had no agency in how the firm handled my report. And there is so much other stuff I would rather be doing than talking about this very grim incident from my life like six years ago. But I feel like I have to keep saying this stuff because they still don't get what the issue is. They don't get what's wrong with normalizing someone like like the message that they sent to me, that they sent to, that they continue to send to the young female lawyers who have to keep working with him. It's so wrong and such a lack of respect, just a lack of, I'm, I'm ranting again. I feel like every, every now and again, I stop myself because I'm like just completely no, you're not, going you're off. you're not ranting. You're not ranting. And we do this as women. We say, oh, sorry, I'm ranting. I'm on my high horse. I do it too. You're articulating brilliantly a very difficult topic in a way that many of us are just too scared to. You should not have to carry the burden of this And you should not have to be having this conversation six years later. But if nothing changes, nothing changes. And you didn't ask for that action. And anyone who's experienced this never asked for that. Everyone processes it differently, works through it in their own way. And I hope that this being another outlet for you and you still being given a platform and a voice because I absolutely do believe that it's you know fundamental to to continue to push and and put pressure on it where we can I hope that that's that's somewhat healing for you in a small way so that you know that it still matters and that you still are supported from from other women in the profession because it's it's still a problem yeah thank you And if we don't have these conversations and if we don't let you go on a rant as such, and really what it is is actually tell your story, we don't let you tell your story, then it continues. And we will be having these conversations with our daughters and our our nieces and that is unacceptable. Well, and I hope our sons as well because our sons are the ones who are doing this stuff. Like, what the heck? I can't stop. You can't stop someone from sexually harassing you. You can't stop them from doing that. I was sick at home in bed. Like, what could I have? But uh, yeah, to go back to that, to go back to that point of, you know, because I was saying before, like, why would women come forward? And you're right in that the healing part of it. I think by speaking out, I did want to set an example of not being silenced by the firm or by anyone else because I was silenced. Not that they they didn't make me sign an NDA, but I was silenced by myself and by my feelings of shame and my feelings of guilt. I didn't want to harm career. I didn't say his name out loud to anyone about it for years, just constantly protecting him and constantly giving him more respect than he ever showed to me. But I do want to say to anyone who is thinking about going to their HR firm or even just, sorry, HR department or just going to their firm or telling a friend or whatever that It is incredibly cathartic and it is incredibly therapeutic to speak the truth because that's all I've done this whole time is just say, this is what happened to me. This is how I feel about it. And to be heard, it is extremely, it has completely changed my perspective on what did because I think because of the way the firm acted subsequently, I definitely internalized this idea that I was somehow at fault and I do not feel like that at all anymore and I'm quite like a feminist person and I was even at the time that it happened but for years afterwards it was like a festering kind of wound and I think probably the only thing that will make it go away completely would be if actually said publicly I do remember doing that I do remember doing that and I'm sorry 
and I shouldn't have done that because he's never he's never done that. He has said sorry. And and the crazy thing about it is that like if he the, the next week or whatever, if he had just put up his hand and said, "Yeah, I did do that and I'm really sorry. I was really drunk and then the next day I panicked and sent her a message because I was panicking and and then when I got asked about it, I lied because I was panicking even more and I deleted all the messages because I continued to panic. I don't know, something like that. Then we would not be sitting here having this conversation. And if the firm had had a reaction of, my goodness, Fiona, oh my gosh, you poor thing. Here, go to therapy for two weeks. And of course you shouldn't have to keep working with And this is what we're going to do. And honestly, probably sack him because... He broke six of the firm's policies, I saw from the report, and they still didn't sack him. And it's like, well, if you have some level of tolerance for sexual harassment, where do you draw the line? And at what point do you say, well, this this much sexual harassment is too much sexual harassment? You know what I mean? Like, I think all firms should have a zero tolerance approach to sexual harassment. If those things had happened, if if had just completely just copped it straight away, I might not have even gone to the firm. Oh, I probably would have because it was pretty serious. Like, we would we would... Then the next morning we were talking about calling the police. But, you know, it just, it would not have been this damaging thing in my life. Like, I've been sexually harassed in other contexts before, you know, like I've been flashed, but nothing, nothing has been traumatic because nothing has, apart from this, has been so personal to me. And I took the experience of it, of being disrespected by a colleague who I thought respected me, of being disrespected and treated like absolute crap by my firm that was supposed to protect me. I completely internalized that. I completely internalized that. And that is not okay. I I was the one person who didn't do anything wrong. And yet I was the one who's had to suffer the most for it. And that is not fair. And it is not okay. It is not okay. And so for anyone else who's listening, (laughs) who has gone through something like that, it was not your fault and it was not okay. We don't have the answers, but the conversation is the key and and the the agitation from within because we are very powerful. I don't think we realise how powerful we are sometimes. And using our voice, it's everything. I can't remember who said it. There's some quote that the first step to relinquishing your power is thinking you don't have any and I think that's very true because we all have power and it's it's by speaking out right like that's the me too movement is amplifying our voices together so they can't not hear us anymore thank you so much this is a pivotal conversation and, and thank you for for letting me have it with you thank you so much thank you so much for having me on it's been really really good I want to thank Fiona again for her courage and her integrity. We did spend some time together after this episode, just talking, so that she wasn't left alone after reliving that time. It is my honour to hold space for her. I will admit, I had my own reservations about publishing this episode, bolstered by the feminine urge to play small and be nice. But with the collective uprising of Australian women like Fiona, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, I'm inspired to play my small part in sharing hard stories. If this episode has brought up difficult or unsettling feelings for you, please reach out to Lifeline for general support. 1-800-RESPECT for anyone experiencing violence, abuse or harassment. And I'd also like to mention the Men's Referral Service. 
a great resource for men wanting change and seeking information on how to be a better ally. I appreciate you, the listener, for listening to this episode as well. A departure from our usual upbeat content, but one that was necessary. And if you are a younger lawyer in the profession, a graduate or a law student, I just want you to know that the behavior is unacceptable and that there are people working for change for you so that you can have a better experience. I said it at the start of the episode, enough is enough. Thank you again.